Small Changes, Big Impact, a DFCM podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Resmovitz. Today's episode is in combination with Dr. Ross Upshur's podcast called Conversations with Complexity. Today's episode focuses on the emotional, psychological, and existential exploration of current topics in medicine. I hope you enjoy the show. So thank you, A, for coming in today. But B, I'm sure you have a big, you could talk about the, the impact that's had, each of those things have had on your life and the people around you. Today's conversation, though, if you, if you want, let's talk about fun stuff, whether it's personal or professional, about, about a small change that you had and, or made and the impact that that had on you, your systems. You know, we can talk about complexity. Yeah, so um, I think change is a, is a really appropriate frame for how people's careers and lives uh, evolve. Um, so I've been constant, like small changes and big changes, I think I'm constantly changing. I'm a restless uh, um, sort, as you note, from the variety of roles I play. I have a kind of variant of intellectual ADHD, so I can never stay settled doing one thing for, uh, for a long period of time. So change is constant in the sense that uh, I think uh, being deeply inquisitive, I've always got um, you know, a few thousand questions to uh, ask and uh, no time to get them properly answered. So the, the, the most significant small change that I think I made, and it's actually fairly self-evident and obvious, is learning to take care of myself a bit better rather than uh, leaving myself open to uh, uh, all of the forces that uh, were impinging upon me with clinical research, teaching, and administrative roles. So the smallest change that I made that had the biggest impact, I think, on uh, my own life and by virtue of that, the lives of others, was actually getting up early in the morning to uh, exercise, to take my dogs out for a walk. So I start the day with a very nice, uh, I live in the beaches, I get up very, very early in the morning, and I walk out by the lake, and it's just me and two dogs. And uh, sometimes you can see the sun rising in the spring and fall, but these days it's uh, very dark. And this morning it was really nice and foggy. But it's the smallest change that had the biggest impact because the simple fact of you know getting up to get outside at 5 in the morning uh, brought me a kind of sense of... Uh, I start the day... Happily, right? So nothing can go wrong after you, and whether it's snowing, raining, or windy, uh, making your dogs happy uh, makes everybody happy. <laughs> so that's kind of a small change. Well, there's that's the paradigm, right? Yeah. Happy dog, happy life. Yep, absolutely. So, and uh, of course, if you're taking better care of yourself, then you're actually a more effective uh, uh, parent, spouse, clinician, researcher. So I think. Uh, Small changes to actually take care of oneself can have tremendous spin-off benefits to virtually every aspect of your life. Yeah. So obviously it begs the question, how did you get to that change? What uh, was going on? Well, so um, I think like many of us, I went through a phase of saying yes to everything. And it's probably around the time that I, mm, that's probably just before I met you. I found I'd, you know, put on uh, an extremely uh, uh, large amount of weight, and we have high blood, I don't mind, you know, I talk about health issues because we're physicians, uh, but uh, I developed extremely high blood pressure, so uh, like 245 over 160, 
And actually, you're going to laugh, but this, I diagnosed it while I was on call and didn't tell anybody. So it was one of the classic things. We had those BP true machines. I said, nah, it's got to be wrong. So I'll just get through the clinic. But it wasn't wrong. Uh, so that was kind of a wake-up call that it was time to really take uh, a step back and take good care of myself. And so since that time, I've been a very well-behaved, um, not so much younger man anymore. So I took a genetic test recently, and it and it. It showed me that I have a genetic defect. Also, I say yes to a lot of stuff. Yeah, also. No, I was looking for a CRISPR that's <laughs> yeah. going to go in and insert a no gene in my head. Somewhere. Yeah, I've been yeah. waiting for that specific focus of my brain for yeah. the telomerases to die off so yeah. I can just say no again. <laughs> um, okay, so then where do you see it had the greatest impact? So you're walking your dogs at 5 a.m. And, um, you know, you've already said... Um, you know, this adage of happy dog, happy life. But, and you said it also will impact every other part of your life. So where yeah. do you think it's had the, the biggest impact? So one of the nice things is if you're up out early wandering, your mind starts to wander. So you think, and you start to think um, a little bit more, I would say, freely. So I've always been interested in reflection and thinking. I started out before I went into medicine as a philosopher. So having time that you can actually just think and think through things, so you can puzzle through uh, problems and issues that you're working on. And, uh, you know, it's no mistake that certain ancient traditions of philosophy were wedded to walking. So Aristotle founded the what's called peripatetic school. Uh, they used to walk and philosophize simultaneously. So getting up and walking and thinking is a really nice way to start the day because then you say, aha, uh -huh. so I can't think of uh, I mean, there's been numerous ideas for papers, studies, things to think about, things to explore uh, that have emerged from those early morning walks. It's a really productive time because that's time that's just for me. And of course, I've got to keep an eye on the dogs, but they're reasonably well behaved. So it's a nice time and it's a nice space to get your day going. And it's outdoors, obviously. And it's outdoors. Yeah. And so if we think of ourselves as systems, yeah. it probably gets your gut system working really well, too. Um, right? It, it, we know that walking um, activates uh, gut motility, um, which leads to you know, certain things being evacuated better yeah. outside than inside. Yeah. So that means your system at home is going to be better because you're... you're whoever's living at home with you, wife and daughter probably, are like, oh, thank God he's gone. He's gone. He's out of there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's obviously going to have benefits, far-reaching benefits of, of you being outside. Um, so tell me about um, something that you thought of on your, on your walk that um, actually was an aha moment that, um, you know, grabbed you and you said, you know what, that, that's, wow, I can't believe this came. Uh, so I think there's at least three or four um, Essay. So one of the things one um, more recently, also give you a recent example, is that uh, AMS Foundation came and asked me to write a paper on the impact of artificial intelligence on family medicine that they wanted presented in the uh, May Leadership Forum. And uh, originally, I had hoped to have a postdoctoral student work with me and do most of the legwork, but then uh, he had to leave the country. So it was left with me. So I was puzzling. I was like, how am I going to put this all together? And as I was walking on the beach, I started to think about how technologies have, well, not just a duality, but they have, they're multi-focused or multifocal in their impacts in human lives. And then I got thinking about um, Roman philosophy and, and Roman uh, mythology 
And I started to think about Janus, who's the two-faced god. And then I remembered, of course, that Janus was one of the key educational initiatives for the College of Family Yeah, it's Physicians. one of the grants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I thought, aha, bang, here these, here's this notion of the kind of... And, and even though it's a two-faced god, it's actually, if you look in, in Roman uh, literature... Uh, that bridge between that two-facedness is actually uh, multiple different things can come in and go out on different sides. It's not just a simple dichotomy. A fluidity. It's a fluidity between various different kinds of transitions. So when I was thinking through that, and then I thought, oh, this is the obvious hook to the Janus Foundation. So that's why when you look at the paper, there's a picture of the two-faced God, and then I start the paper by talking about the dual nature or the multifocal nature of um, technologies and how we might want to start. So some people might want to drive to the kind of uh, Pollyanna-ish technological future where artificial intelligence solves all of our problems. Others might want to go down the dystopic view of it's going to ruin everything, hollow out cognitive labor, and replace physicians. And somewhere in between that those two poles of the dialectic lies probably a more robust answer. So through walking on the beach that morning, making that connection, then I was able to uh, sit down and actually went right to work and sit you know, it's one of those, got to keep it in mind, got to keep it in mind, sat down and wrote almost the entire draft in one sitting, which was kind of fun. Wow. So where is this uh, treatise? It's uh, actually uh, linked to on the Canadian, on the College of Family, on the, on the journal, on the CFP, on a Canadian Family Physician, and it's on the AMS website. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to check it out. 16 pages. I wrote clearly as I can. And so what was your conclusion? For... All the listeners who aren't going to read 16 pages right now and um, are in tune with podcasting instead. Yes. Well, they can. <laughs> so, the, uh, so there's a podcast on this as well. So uh, they can. Uh, well, the conclusion was that I think that we have uh, as a not just as family physicians, but as a medical profession, uh, not only an uh, obligation, but an opportunity to engage uh, with these technologies early rather than later. The other thing that I wanted to highlight is that there are uh, fairly potent economic interests behind the movement of the tech sector into medicine, and we may want to not repeat the same mistakes we made in the early days with pharmaceutical companies. Um, forewarned is forearmed. Uh, we need to invest in digital literacy. We need to invest in that at the undergraduate, uh, graduate, and postgraduate level, and certainly in continuing professional development. Uh, one of the fears I do have is this kind of separating into the coders and non-coders as we move forward. So more and more of our students will be coming into medicine, probably having some facility with coding, and will know how to work with these technologies. Uh, but there might be a large number of uh, physicians who will feel somewhat alienated from the technologies because they can't get under the back and behind and learn how to use it for themselves. So they'll be actually uh, dependent on what's presented to them rather than crafting something for themselves. Do you think there's going to be a role for both of them in the future? Yeah, I think it's, there's always, it's, it's interesting as specialized technologies come in, there's usually kind of a settling out. You've got a, a like on a pyramid, just kind of like how we've uh, envisioned medicine in some ways with, you know, super specialists all the way down to generalists. Um, so I think that, that there'll be an equilibrium with the new technologies. 
some of them are just frankly not going to work and not pan out. And that's kind of the ethos of the industry is to, you know, try and fail fast. Uh, that's hard for people in medicine because you want some sort of stability and certainly you don't want to fail fast on the backs of your patients. So I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, next decade or so as these new technologies integrate into clinical care. And make no mistake, they will integrate into clinical care in ways that we can see, in ways that will be unforeseen. Yeah, I think they actually printed that, uh, what you just said, in the JOD last week. Do you know yeah. the JOD? No. Listen. Oh, the Journal of Duh. <laughs> yeah, the Journal of Duh, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think physicians have a role to play as the interface between the technologies, whether or not those technologies are impacting how we practice or whether or not how patients come in and, and, and ask us about our, our yeah. opinion. Yeah. I mean, that it's going to do that, right? Like, um, I don't think the technology is the solution. I think the, the dialogue that happens, you know, that interface that you're yeah. talking about, that's going to be the solution of how we progress forward. If we can focus on that and creating dialogue, um, whether it's interfacing between, um, you know, do you know about the doctor-patient relationship? Uh, so I've heard about that somewhere. Have yeah. you ever heard about the doctor-computer relationship? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, well, I remember when um, we transformed over to the electronic medical record, they sent us this picture, and it was actually what I would call server center medicine, right? So they had, at the center of it all was the server, and uh, they had this picture of patient, or doctors seeing patients where doctors were looking at computer screens, and patients were little triangles with circles on top, so that gave you a good idea of how, how the computer-physician interface was being seen from the tech side of the equation. Oh, yeah. No, it's a, it's a real relationship. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually see it um, in clinic when you, when you start looking for stuff and, you, you know, there's a patient beside you. Mm -hmm. So I've actually started turning the computer towards the patient, and we scroll together now. Yes. Um, it makes for way better. It's... Uh, for a much better relationship. Well, I'm a, I'm a hopeless typist still. So when we made the conversion over, I used to joke to my patients for them to bring their laptop in so they could Skype me and I could see them. That was a, just a bit of a joke. But eventually I just turned away from the computer entirely and would make all my notes after. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's key. Yeah. It really is. If, unless you can make a little bit of notes as you're going, um, you're going to be disconnected from the patient. Yeah. And so really... Um, where are we going in medicine from a um, technological, um, bureaucratic, political way, uh, like manner? How, how do we maintain that, that, that connectedness with our patient? Is it, is it all or none? Do you really just turn it off? Well, I think we have to teach, uh, and that's one of the strengths of family medicine, the importance of the uh, fundamental relational nature of medicine. If you want to... Um, revert it all down to some sort of interface with a search engine and, uh, a, and a technology, that will be what we get. Uh, but I think if we continue to teach that the fundamental nature of medicine is in that physician-patient relationship in some important, robust sense, um, then we can continue that. Otherwise, we will be displaced by machines. So one of the best places where you can see that we haven't been um, replaced by machines yet is on house calls. Because mm -hmm. um, it's, it's somewhat awkward sometimes. You go into the house and you don't know their Wi-Fi password. So <laughs> you're not bringing your computer in and, and, and setting up a, you know, a station there, if you will. And yeah. so you get down to basics. Um, and so I, I finally remember bringing um, some learners with me on house calls and then being you know, completely um, 
mesmerized by the fact that we're we're offering like medicine. Yeah. Which is a surrogate of it's care. You're just offering care. Yes. So do you see um how do you see the future with respect to um to the care that we offer? Um, do you think it's going to change? Uh, do you think that we as family physicians will still be the stewards of, of care, the gatekeepers of, of, of our healthcare system? Uh, that's a, a, a very good question. And I can envision um, uh, several uh, possible scenarios. So there are definitely interests that wish to displace um, the presence that is the face-to-face meeting uh, between a physician and patient as the kind of central interface between medicine and patients. Uh, that's why there's such a, a move and push towards virtual care. Um, virtual care is still face-to-face, but it's not presence-to-presence. Not fa- it's not face-to-face, it's distributed. Yeah, yeah. well, it's mediated through screens and other things. Uh, but it's got an attractive allure to people who are time-pressured, busy, uh, find that it meets their needs. So I hear a lot of people talking about the virtues of virtual care um, and actually considering, you know, basing primary care systems in some variant of virtual care. good example of that is uh, Babylon AI's GP at hand, which was implemented in the UK and now is coming to the uh, Canadian. Uh, and it's got a very explicit marketing strategy and it's a displacing uh, form of primary care. So I think family physicians are going to need to be savvy, organized, and dare I say, somewhat political uh, to make the case that the kind of care that they bring is actually what is best for patients and for their families in the short, intermediate, and long term. So it would, and there's you know fairly considerable research evidence that suggests that that's the case. So the move towards a patient's medical home, uh, you know, supported by the College of Family Physicians, is an attempt, I think, to sort of ground the care of patients and families through the life course. Some of it will become virtual. I think almost everybody would agree that there are some efficiencies to be had through not making sure, you know, making people come in for every little thing. We needed regulatory permission, for example, to start to use email, text messaging, and other ways of interacting with patients to make sure that it met certain security parameters, et cetera, et cetera. So I can see, I can envision several different futures that have various degrees of technological mediation written into them. Uh, the worst case scenario would be a complete displacement of face-to-face uh, uh, medicine, and I think there's probably a happy medium in between, though I'm conscious of the kind of historically conditioning forces as different cohorts of people come through with different expectations that will definitely transform how we do our business. As you speak, I, I can't think, um, I can't but think of like how art reflects society. And um, I think about some some really standout um, paintings and images in my head of you know doctors kneeling bedside that we've seen these pictures before, like really like bubonic plague um, uh, representations, um, uh, people that have just been around. And so I, I started thinking also as you're talking about the future of what it will look like. Um, of, of what the of what the museums are going to be housing 
uh, of reflections of society with with an Apple laptop and and um, and, and virtual care being um, demonstrated here, and you just have like two computers and. You don't even see the people's back. You just see the backs. And yeah. so I'm just trying to understand uh, because I, I'm, I'm looking forward to future, um, you know, uh, garage sales and lawn sales when all of the newest, uh, you know, uh, gadgets. gadgets for health that have gone the eight track way are all being recycled across the neighborhood. So so someone came up, a patient, you know, I hope he's OK with me talking about this, but uh he says we're, you know, everybody's busy, you know, you made a comment, you know, the biggest change, the smallest change that you made this that had a big impact was was going for a walk. You made this change. And he said this Fitbit that he's got on, he says it needs to be replaced. He says we're so busy now. He needs a sit bit. Do you know about the sit bit? No, tell me about that. Yeah, you got you got to sit down. It tells you when you should stop. <laughs> You're so busy doing everything. You're running after your kids. You're you're trying to make dinner. You're trying to make lunches. You're trying to answer emails. You're trying to watch Netflix. You're trying to do everything. But yeah, the pause bit. Yeah, yeah. the pause bit. Yeah, yeah. Pausing yeah. is so important. So, yeah. so you take your morning walk, your stroll. Um, so, are you trying to achieve a certain number of steps in a day? No. Amazing. Um, where else do you find that you pause during the day? So there's a couple of things I've done throughout my um, adult life. I I need to read every day, and I need to read a lot. Um, And so I usually try to carve out at least an hour, an hour and a half to two hours a day simply to read. And that's a habit that I've had since I learned to read when I was like three or four years old. I've always been a reader. Uh, and if I don't read, I'm grumpy. So I need to have at least seven or eight books on the go. And then, of course, you know, 40 or 50 journals that I keep my eyes on. Uh, so that's one thing that to me is non-negotiable. It's, it's uh, feeding my brain with new ideas from various different uh, uh, areas of inquiry. And I read broadly and widely as I can. I like to. I, I was sad when we lost the journal rooms. You know, in the library over at the Gerstein, they used to have the periodical room, and there'd be stacks and stacks of shelves with every journal you could think of. And I would just randomly pull journals off and sit down and try to see if I could understand what they were talking about, be it biochemistry or anthropology, whatever. Uh, Now you have to be a little bit more, um, it's harder to do because it's hard to find lists of journals and just randomly access them. I think they they took it away because the the library was supporting one person going in and <laughs> yeah, there's only one person actually picking up the paper journals. Yeah, there was a couple of old oldsters like myself. Yeah, right. I mean, how often can you support? I mean, it's a lot of money to support that yes. uh, habit, and so yeah, it's a lot of money to support the electronic version as well. There, yeah. there's it is a lot of money to support. So, what? Um, give me your top five. What do you What do you think people should be reading right now? Wow, you know um, what? That's a really good question. And I said, what do you think people should be? And you know what? In the last interview we did, I, I told them that we don't shit on people here. Yeah. So how about this? I'm going to reframe my question. Top five journals or or top five areas that people should be, not should be, ought consider reading. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a fabulous question. Um, so I think right now one of the most dynamic and interesting areas of scholarship is actually in philosophy of medicine. 
So there's some very interesting new journals and some very good papers coming out, uh, really foundational debates. They're a bit ahead of the curve in Europe. So in Europe and the UK, there's established programs on philosophy of medicine. Uh, one of my uh, doctoral students was the, actually the first um, MD-PhD student to do a PhD in philosophy of medicine and he just actually signed on at the University of Pittsburgh. So he's writing a lot about causality, um, a lot about uh, uh, disease taxonomy, so how we understand and, and, uh, and appreciate diseases, how we think about causation and extrapolation of, for example, the results of clinical trials to individual patients. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. There's a lot of really interesting work being done in planetary health and environmental health. Uh, Is that like the health on on Mars? Yeah, that's right. The health on Mars. Whether a mass coronal ejection of solar energy is going to end us. Uh, I thought they were just um, trying to figure out the health system on Mars and see if we could adopt uh, planetary. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, interplanetary health system. And, you know, it's important uh, for everybody, I think, to be engaged with uh, literature. So I won't be normative as to which fiction they want to read, but my uh, my wife is a novelist, so we have a large number of, uh, you know, novels in the house. So I always have a couple of uh, novels on the go. And poetry. You should read poetry every day. So Goethe said he had this triad that everybody should listen to music, read a poem, or look at a painting every day. So I've been working on that Goethe triad for a long time. And it's easy because there's a, the American Academy of Poets has a, you can sign up for it and they send you a poem a day. And there's all these, you know, there's a wonderful set of contemporary poets and it takes like three minutes on your inbox to read a poem. And, you know, go to the Art Gallery of Ontario. So read widely. Uh, science and nature are always good for, for taking a look at what's happening on the cutting edge. You know, I look at the New England Journal, the Lancet, the British, all the major medical journals as they come in weekly. Um, and sometimes my two hours of reading actually extends to four, and then I have to upgrade myself for not getting any work done because I've gone down a wormhole. You did get work done. Yeah, I did. It's, it's the work that, uh, uh, that most sustains me, and that's because you know, I've been a reader all my life and, as I said, inquisitive with intellectual ADHD. So, so um, I'm going to do a shameless plug for myself and say look up CFP. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is I was their first poet um, to submit something. Oh, so congratulations. I, thank well you. Well done. So I have two, I have two poems. Um, and then, um, interestingly enough, so I sent one of those poems to CMAJ. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the editor wrote back to me, that, thank you for your, for your submission. After reading your poem, we have decided to no longer offer poetry in the CMAJ. <laughs> <laughs> That's Barb Sibold. I'm just calling her out. I've met her. We've talked about it. It's funny. That's, they've, they've, that know, is very funny. The importance of the arts and humanity. Um, but, um, but it was really important, actually, because the editor, I did another one. Um, I submitted um, a third poem to CFP, and it was called uh, Joy Anemia, hmm. um, because I think it was happening in medicine. It was happening to me. It was happening to other people. Um, do you know about joy anemia? That's yeah, when it's all just like gets sucked out of you, like you're yeah. hemorrhaging any life blood yeah. of interest. And so I offered um, in the poem, I offered some um, tips and tools. And the response that I got back has changed me in medicine from then on. Um, 
what the editor wrote back was, uh, show me, don't tell me. Has anyone ever said that to you? Show me, don't tell me. Because I think so often we just tell people without mm. actually showing them. And so my question to you is, what are you doing now? Um, and has that small change, you go out for a walk, does, has it, do other people in your family go out for a walk? Has it translated to other people walking now or, or being more physically active? Or what are the things are you doing that you're showing people how to do that has had an impact? No. So I think uh, all of our family members are pretty active, so I don't think that that's uh, uh, exemplary role modeling. Uh, it's just uh, me joining the crowd more on the more or less. Um, yeah, I actually would say at this stage of my career, I don't have much to show. I get these uh, re, you know, requests that we'd like to come and shadow you. And I'd say, well, I'm not sure what I can show you except a little bit of wrist action on before I press send on my emails. So I'm doing a lot more uh, administrative work today. And I think it's more or less, you know, what do I show people? I would say, you know, how to be committed and uh, try to keep things moving forward. I mean, working in academic leadership, you've got to herd cats, you've got to get people motivated to do things. I often say my job is a, a cross between, you know, Albus Dumbledore and Tom Sawyer. How do you get people to paint your fence for free? And how do you ma wave magic wands and make things happen uh, with, uh, you know, finite resources? Oh, so you're priming yourself to become the chair of the university. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think I've reached my highest level of administrative competence. I don't think there's much beyond uh, where I want to be. So I'm going to challenge you. Mm. The next time someone asks to shadow you, say yes. And I'll tell you why. Invite mm. them to read. Sit down and say, hi, I'm going to be reading right here. Yep. I'm, I'm going to be showing you what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be reading for the next hour. And I challenge you to invite them to read. In fact, I want to uh, get an invite from you to come over and read. And we yeah. read, and then we and then we talk. Yes. Yeah. While walking. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to live. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. No. It's uh, absolutely correct. So when I with my PhD students, I tell them that they get a free year, and I tell them to go and read as widely and as deeply and uh, and without actually. And this is a bit. Um, you're not supposed to tell your PhD students without any purpose, right? Because they're going to spend the rest of their lives. But you're just messing with them. I know, but it's true. But I do send them off. And but they, they don't, don't get it yet. Yeah, they do. Do they? they? Yeah, so I've had several of them come back and say, you were right, that this was, you know, they've all since been, you know, hired as tenure steam professors. And then they've got the life where they think that they were going to have time to read and research, but they're incredibly busy. So that time that they had when they were graduate students is the most magical time uh, in their lives to be free and unconstrained in an intellectual fashion because otherwise we're just disciplined all the time. But it's not without purpose. You have a purpose. It's a, it's a, uh, a subversive purpose. Yeah, it's obvious to me. Yeah. <laughs> Do they not see that you're trying to get them to just be as general and wide as possible because you can actually generate ideas that's yes. what innovation is. Yeah, well, innovation is the, taking one idea and putting it uh, something of value and taking it and putting it in an area that didn't have that. Yeah, that's the whole goal is to just to get them to open and free their mind to think as broadly and freely as possible. Yeah. So there is purpose. Yeah. So you have worth and value. <laughs> Can't believe I have to sit here across and tell you that, Ross. Okay. Do you have? <laughs> 
do you have any last parting words? Like, what would you tell someone, uh, two people? Here's mm-hmm. what I want you to One, I want you to tell um, a new, um, someone calls you up and says, hey, my son or daughter is interested in becoming a physician. Um, what would you tell them? And two, what would you tell yourself, you know, uh, when you were a young whippersnapper, um, I guess what, 20 years ago? Yeah, the, the, the 20-year-old me would be very disappointed in the 61-year-old me. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, because I, I mean, I'm so conventional. I'm a University of Toronto professor. How are you conventional? There's That's nobody the, I know that reads two to four <laughs> hours a day. I'm the very instantiation of what is the establishment. And when I was 20, I was involved in, you know, radical environmental politics. And uh, uh, so, uh, as my mother said, when I was admitted to uh, medical school, she said uh, she was a hospital administrator. Um, and her job, she ran admissions and records. So she was always battling with physicians to get their uh, records signed off. And if they didn't, they would be suspended. Uh, so she actually didn't like doctors very much. And so when I went from philosophy into medicine, she said, I'm so disappointed. I thought you were an interesting person. So, <laughs> Wow. We can, we can take this therapy off air. <laughs> Anyhow, I th- secretly she was proud, but... Uh, so someone coming into medicine, I would really like to have a long conversation about their motivations. I think uh, many young people are drawn for, to medicine for a series of motivations that they haven't really reflected upon. It's a stable, it's a safe profession. Um, when I applied to medicine, I wrote an essay saying that if I were to say that it was my lifelong ambition to be a physician, I would be guilty of a grievous lie. I think that's what got me interviewed at McMaster. I didn't come from a pre-med. I made one application and I was accepted. And I was grateful for that because the uh, future for PhDs in philosophy was not particularly rosy. And uh, I've never regretted uh, for a minute actually uh, starting medicine. I'd actually worked in hospitals uh, all through uh, high school and undergrad as an orderly. So I knew I knew healthcare from the bottom up because I'd been wiping up bodily fluids and moving injured and sick people around and listening carefully to how physicians and nurses talked and asking questions about x-rays and, you know, what does this mean and what does that mean? So I picked up quite a lot of clinical medicine before I'd even got to medical school just through osmosis. So the real question for people entering medicine is why do they want to be a physician? Do they realize uh, how profound a commitment this is to the well-being of others? Uh, What demands it's going to make on you? Because it is a very intellectually, psychologically, existentially demanding profession. And as much as it looks good on television, as much as it sounds good, you really need to be prepared for the vicissitudes that a medical career is going to impose on you. I would definitely not say that it's the easiest way to proceed, but it's certainly authentic, meaningful, and engages you in family medicine across anything that can and will happen to a human you will learn about uh, in your years as a family physician. And there is no greater gift that can be given to somebody than to be present and to witness that in someone else and to try to help them through that. It's really, you know, if they don't appreciate the profound nature of what it means to be a physician, then they should maybe think about arbitrage or some other form of (laughs) of existence. (laughs) 
Okay, on that, I'm going to just say thank you. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. And, it's been uh, fun. Oh, yeah, it was great fun. And um, wow, um, maybe we'll have part two and we'll talk about, um, you know, the lives that could have been. Yes. Um, thank you, Ross. A pleasure. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks. This podcast was made possible through the support of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Special thanks to Alison Mullen, Brian De Silva, and the whole podcast committee. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.